Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On a cold April day in 1990, rain turned into sleet and then snow as hundreds of mourners huddled outside a church in Indiana. They were listening on portable radios to the service taking place inside. A bitter wind snapped umbrellas inside out, but it couldn't drown out the sound of dozens of voices joined in a chorus of Amazing Grace, led by Elton John. Inside the church, entertainers and professional athletes were gathered to pay their final respects at a moving funeral service. When it was over, they joined a procession of 100 cars led by 20 police officers on motorcycles as it made its way along rural county roads to a cemetery. This funeral could have been for a Hollywood star or a music legend, but it wasn't. It was for an 18-year-old boy who had become a symbol of tolerance and understanding during his fight to be treated like a normal teenager. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we go back to the 80s to understand how one teen's legacy helped shape HIV-AIDS advocacy in the decade to come. Today, we honor the amazing life of Ryan White. During the very early days of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, the North American blood supply became contaminated with HIV from infected donors. You see, at first it was unclear that the virus was spread through bodily fluids. So donors at clinics weren't screened and their blood donations weren't tested. And even when there was mounting evidence that HIV was transmissible through blood, agencies that distributed blood and blood products in the U.S. and Canada were slow to act. As a result, between 1981 and 1985, about 10,000 hemophiliacs were unknowingly infected with HIV. Hemophilia is a bleeding disorder which is usually inherited. It prevents blood from clotting properly and requires patients to receive life-saving transfusions. Some notable people with hemophilia include Richard Burton, Queen Victoria, and Ryan White. Ryan White was born on December 6, 1971, at St. Joseph Memorial Hospital in Kokomo, Indiana, to Hubert and Jeannie White. Just three days later, doctors diagnosed him with severe hemophilia, and they warned his mother that he shouldn't play contact sports, and if he were ever in a car crash, he would need immediate assistance or he would bleed to death. A stressful diagnosis for any new mother. But life carried on, and two years later, Ryan's sister, Andrea, was born. And the family lived an ordinary life in their Midwestern city, 60 miles from Indianapolis. Then, in December 1984, just after his 13th birthday, Ryan was diagnosed with HIV. Ryan's mom, Jeannie, was shocked by the news. It was something that... I really didn't even believe he had. I I felt like, how could he have AIDS? I mean, he was a hemophiliac uh, since birth. And I just felt like that, how could he be one of the first ones? I felt like somehow, some way, it's going to be something else. I really never really believed he had AIDS for quite a while. But it was true. Ryan had contracted the virus from a tainted blood clotting agent. And doctors told Jeannie that her son had between 6 and 12 months to live. 
At the time, Ryan was in grade six at Western Middle School. And as word got out about his diagnosis, hysteria spread in the community. In 1984, HIV-AIDS was seen as a death sentence. There were no effective treatments to manage the virus, which had first appeared just three years earlier. Teachers and people whose children attended school with Ryan said they were scared he was contagious. They pressured the school board to bar him from attending classes. Ryan and his family became the target of rumors and harassment. Restaurants they went to threw away their dishes and cutlery after they left. At church, the White family was asked to sit in either the first or last pew of the church. Parishioners refused to shake Ryan's hand, and no one would use the bathroom after him. Nelson Price, a journalist and historian who has written extensively about Ryan White, says despite the backlash, the 13-year-old and his family remained resolute. You know, they were getting garbage was being dumped on their lawn day after day. They would rotate. Uh, Ryan would pick it up one day. The next day it was his sister's turn. Andrea, then Jeannie would do it. In July 1985, under pressure from teachers and parents, the superintendent of the Western Schools Corporation issued an order barring Ryan from school. James O. Smith said the health risk for other children was too great. Ryan had actually been off school since the diagnosis, but according to his mom, Jeannie, he was looking forward to returning to class in the fall to start grade seven. When Ryan was diagnosed, they only gave him three to six months to live. So at that time, I thought every cough, every fever, I was worried about whether it was going to be the last. And I really didn't think he'd ever be healthy enough to go to school. But as he started getting healthy and he started gaining his weight, he started asking mom. He said, mom, he said, I want to go to school. He said, uh, I want to go visit my friends. I want to see, see my friends. And so I really kind of put him off for a while. And finally, he just said, you know, mom, I want to go to school. I want to go visit. So Jeannie and Ryan made a decision to fight the ban. That decision thrust them to the front lines in the battle to end the stigmatization of people with HIV-AIDS. Ryan was about to become the most famous kid with AIDS, but he certainly wasn't the only one with the illness. In 1985, the New York Times reported that there were 165 children under the age of 12 living with AIDS in the U.S. and another 113 who had already died. Some were hemophiliacs who contracted HIV through tainted blood like Ryan, while others were infected in utero by a mum carrying the virus. Of those 165 children, about 20 had parents or guardians who were pushing for them to be allowed to attend school. At that time, New York City and Swansea, Massachusetts were the only two jurisdictions that allowed students with AIDS in the classroom. Other jurisdictions set up separate facilities for students with the virus, including Dade County, Florida, where triplet girls with AIDS in grade one were taught by a volunteer teacher in an old, mostly empty building in Miami. But around the U.S., other children were barred from school altogether. A five-year-old girl in Plainfield, New Jersey, was kept out of kindergarten. A brother and sister in a Washington borough were told to stay home. And same for two other young students in New Haven, Connecticut. School officials justified their actions on the basis of what they called public and faculty fear. That was the thing. HIV-AIDS was two epidemics in one. 
an epidemic of disease and death, and also an epidemic of fear. The same year that Ryan White was barred from school, parents in Queens, New York, organized a boycott of classes when a grade two student with AIDS was allowed to attend school. Over 10,000 kids stayed home while their parents picketed outside elementary schools. They chanted, save our kids, keep AIDS out. It's easy to look back at this time and try to excuse the parents' behavior by saying they just didn't know how the virus was spread. But by this stage in the epidemic, that simply wasn't true. In August 1985, just before the new school year started, the Centers for Disease Control released an advisory that stated HIV is transmitted primarily through sexual contact and through exposure to infected blood or blood products. It went on to say that none of the HIV cases in the U.S. were known to have been transmitted in the school or daycare setting or through casual person-to-person contact. Nelson Price says by the 1985-86 school year, it was very clear how you could and could not get AIDS. It's just people, it is really hard to get through to people who are so fearful. And so I was hearing before I went up there and then for years afterwards, still, well, mosquitoes can carry it. You can get it from a gay waiter. You can get it from casual contact. And uh, all these medical experts were saying, even then, there has to be an exchange of bodily fluids. There is no risk to having Ryan in a regular school setting like that. Despite the evidence, the battle to keep Ryan out of Western Middle School raged on. His case was in and out of court for 13 months. All the while, Ryan remained out of school. He was forced to learn remotely. And it wasn't like the Zoom classes that became common during the pandemic. Ryan was forced to listen over the phone to his teacher, whose voice was picked up by a single microphone set up in what should have been his classroom. The quality of the telephone broadcast was almost unlistenable. And it was far from a solution. But the other parents were adamant to keep Ryan out of the classroom. And every time there was a court ruling in Ryan's favor, the opposing parents filed an injunction to keep the ban in place while the matter was kicked up to a higher court. It seemed like it might go on forever. And as the court battles continued, some people started accusing Ryan's mother, Jeannie, of being a stage mom who was pushing her son into the spotlight against his will. Nelson Price says from the very first time he met Ryan, it was clear that the teenager wasn't being forced into anything. He was pretty obviously the one in charge. When I showed up with the photographer and we were interacting with Jeannie and Ryan can't come out of his bedroom yet, uh, my first uh, encounter with him was a disembodied voice saying, there can be two photos, one of me in the bedroom, one of me, you know, in other words, he was kind of laying down terms. He was never hostile to me. I don't mean to imply that. It was just, he was a forceful personality. So I think getting back to this uh, misperception that she was a stage mother, I attribute that to, it was easier for the people on the other side to vilify her than it was this kid who had a fatal disorder. Ryan White was smart. He read Time Magazine for fun. He was articulate and incredibly spunky. And for all those reasons, 
plus his harrowing health battles and the fight to attend school, he became a media celebrity, speaking out against prejudice and not just for people with HIV-AIDS. Here he is on the Phil Donahue talk show. Uh, you've had a very front row seat to prejudice, haven't you? Very much so. Tell me something about that. In my case, it was fear and just because, you know, I, I supposedly had something in my body that nobody else had or a lot, very few people had. And I think I just, it's because you're different. I mean, um, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm surprised we really have dogs nowadays because they're different. It's amazing how, you know, you can accept a dog into your house, but you can't accept someone because of their race, you know, their color or their religion or what they have in them. All of the publicity around Ryan's story catapulted him into the national spotlight amidst a growing wave of AIDS coverage in the news media. All the while, Ryan's battle to attend school dragged on. Then in July 1985, a court dismissed an appeal by the parents' group who opposed Ryan attending school in Kokomo. Citing financial problems, the parents' group announced it would finally end the legal battle. So on August 25, 1985, Ryan began grade 8 at Western High School. He had persevered and won the battle to attend classes with his peers. But the war was far from over. Ryan was taunted and shunned by other students. His locker was vandalized. Windows were broken at the White's home. And cashiers refused to touch his mother's hands when making change at the supermarket. It's worth mentioning that not everyone in Kokomo was against the White family. There were some who supported them. But overall, it was not a welcoming community. Outside of Kokomo, Ryan had become a well-known name and attracted the attention of several celebrities, including Michael Jackson. After hearing his story, Jackson befriended Ryan, who visited the singer's Neverland Ranch on several occasions with his mom and his sister Andrea. The two talked on the phone frequently, sometimes a couple of times a week, usually chatting about cars, which was something Ryan was quite interested in. And that might be why Jackson later surprised him with a brand new red Mustang on his 17th birthday. In a thank you letter to Jackson, Ryan wrote, Gee, it's great. It really brightened up my summer and it came just in time too. The local Mustang club is having a show. Now I can enter mine and join the club. Of course, since then, Jackson has been the subject of allegations of sexual abuse involving minors. But neither Ryan nor his mother ever suggested that anything inappropriate happened when they were at the Neverland Ranch or any other time. It appears that Jackson simply offered a much-needed distraction to a sick young boy and his family. U.S. Olympic diving legend Greg Louganis also befriended Ryan. Reaching out to him in 1987 while at the Pan American Games, which were being held in Indianapolis near Ryan's house. Luganus heard what the teen was going through and identified with his experience of being bullied as a child. The diver invited Ryan and his family to the Pan Am Games, and after winning two gold medals, Luganus gave one to the teenager. And that marked the beginning of a wonderful friendship between the Olympian and the White family that continues to this day. Luganus has said he reached out to Ryan because he thought if people saw that he wasn't afraid of him, then maybe the public would be more accepting. In a terrible twist of fate, the year after Luganus met Ryan, he too was diagnosed with HIV-AIDS, a diagnosis he kept secret so that he could compete in the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. 
Elton John also became a big part of Ryan's life after reading a magazine article about his struggle to live a normal teenage life. The battle moved Elton John so much, he reached out to the Whites and invited them to one of his concerts. The singer has said he instantly felt a connection with Ryan and his family. In October 1986, Elton then went one step further and arranged a private tour and a party for Ryan at Disneyland. He says he wanted to give the teen an adventure. Limos, planes, fancy hotels, a carefree time to take his mind off his pain. Despite these respites from the harassment, thanks to Elton John and the other celebrities who took up Ryan's cause, his life was still hell. Things had not gotten any easier for Ryan or his family when he was finally allowed to attend classes. Customers on his paper route canceled their subscriptions. His mom's tires were slashed. Even the local paper was targeted. After it supported Ryan's right to attend school, the publisher's house was egged and a reporter received death threats. Things were so bad, Nelson Price asked Ryan's mom the question many people wondered. Why didn't they just move? So this is early 1986. Jeannie looked me right in the eye and said, Nelson, who would buy the AIDS house? You know, it's like, boom, who would? Again, we're talking about a single mom, factory worker. She just can't buy a second home. But the White family did eventually end up moving. A year later, in 1987, they relocated to nearby Cicero, Indiana, thanks in part to one of Ryan's celebrity friends. Elton John uh, sent when he realized they needed to move. He needed a fresh start. And um, Elton John gave them money. He intended it to be a gift. He says in his autobiography, Jeannie insisted that it be a loan. And she eventually repaid it. And Elton John's special relationship with Ryan was reciprocal. The singer has publicly stated that spending time with the White family caused him to make major changes to his lifestyle, which at the time, he says, was pretty crazy and out of control. Within six months of meeting Ryan, Elton John got sober and clean, and has been so ever since. After moving to Cicero, Ryan attended his first day of classes at Hamilton Heights High School on August 31st, 1987. And this time, he was received with open arms. The principal welcomed him with a handshake and encouraged the student body to engage in accurate and informative discussions about HIV-AIDS. Ryan was also met by student government leaders who escorted him to class, and members of the football team offered to carry his books. It was a completely different experience than what had happened in Kokomo for the previous several years. That's partly thanks to Hamilton High's student president, Jill Stewart. She happened to live two doors down from Ryan and his family and took it upon herself to organize seminars to educate students at Hamilton High about HIV-AIDS before Ryan even arrived. Jill and Ryan soon became best friends. At his new school, Ryan made the honor roll, attended ball games, and learned to drive the Mustang gifted to him by Michael Jackson. His mom says he even surprised her one day when he announced he had gotten a job at a skateboard shop. And I said, how much are you getting paid? And he said like three fifty an hour. And I said, Brian, that won't even buy your gas to Indianapolis and back. He said, Mom, you don't get it. I got a job just like everybody else does. So it was really important for Ryan to just be one of the other kids and to try to fit in. 
Reporter Nelson Price says that's all Ryan was fighting for. He just wanted to be a normal kid. He just wanted to be outside playing with his friends. He wanted to go to school with his friends. And uh, so he just strived for normalcy. And that, by the way, is one huge reason he came off so effectively on uh, national TV is because he came across as a normal kid. But that said, there was no denying that parts of Ryan's life were challenging. Remember, during this whole time, the teenager was also battling AIDS. Ryan was in and out of hospital with AIDS-related illnesses, and over time, he grew quite frail. Despite that, he pushed on and continued to embrace his role as a spokesperson to end the stigmatization associated with HIV. His goal was to teach the public to hate the virus instead of each other. Ryan appeared in ad campaigns and on TV talk shows. He wrote a book, and there was even an ABC TV movie called The Ryan White Story. And in March 1988, at the age of 16, Ryan even addressed the White House AIDS Commission established by President Ronald Reagan. The packed room immediately turned silent and attentive as the teenager dressed in stonewashed jeans and high tops confidently told his story. With his mom and his new best friend, Jill Stewart, by his side, Ryan said because of a lack of education on AIDS, discrimination, panic, and lies surrounded him after his diagnosis. When he was done, Commission Chairman Retired Admiral James Watkins called Ryan a bright light in the dark world of AIDS. It's important to mention that President Reagan established the AIDS Commission after years of ignoring the disease or not taking it seriously. The subject was first raised during a White House press briefing in October 1982, about a year after the illness first appeared in a medical journal. A reporter asked the White House press secretary for President Reagan's reaction to AIDS. When the reporter mentioned the disease was known as the gay plague, the media gallery burst into laughter. In response to the question, the president's press secretary simply said, well, I don't have it which sparked even more laughter. Then he asked the reporter several times if he had AIDS. Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS publicly until September 1985, four years after the crisis began. He called the virus a top priority in response to a reporter's question. But it wasn't until the spring of 1987 that Reagan gave a major speech about AIDS, And by that time, the virus had already struck 36,000 Americans, killing more than 20,000. Reagan's speech was in Washington, and it was organized by AMFAR, the American Foundation for AIDS Research. Elizabeth Taylor, a lifelong friend of Ronald and Nancy Reagan, persuaded the president to be there. Reagan told the crowd that old-fashioned fear has no place in the land of the brave. We're still learning about how AIDS is transmitted, but experts tell us you don't get it from telephones or swimming pools or drinking fountains. You don't get it from shaking hands or sitting on a bus or anywhere else for that matter. These were the words that Ryan White and other AIDS activists had longed to hear from the president. Reassurance to the public that people with AIDS could not transmit the virus through casual contact. This is what Ryan had been lobbying for, education on a national level about HIV-AIDS. Despite all of his work, 
and the president's pivot to acknowledge AIDS, discrimination and fear remained an issue. In southern Florida, three brothers with hemophilia infected with HIV found themselves in a situation similar to Ryan White. In the fall of 1986, the Ray brothers, ages 8, 9, and 10, were barred from attending Memorial Elementary School in Fort DeSoto County. Their parents sued, and in the summer of 1987, a judge ordered they be allowed to return. On their first day back to class on August 24th, the young boys were escorted into the building by their parents and a lawyer. The court had ruled in their favor, but the family was expecting the fight to continue. And it did. About 50% of the students at their school boycotted classes, plus several bomb threats were called into the school. Then, four days later, the Ray family home in Arcadia, Florida, was targeted by arsonists. Because of death threats, most of the family was staying with relatives at an undisclosed location, so only the boy's uncle was in the house at the time of the fire. He was rescued and treated in hospital for smoke inhalation. The Ray family home was destroyed. It was a clear message for the family. Fearing for their safety, the family immediately moved to Sarasota, where the boys were allowed to attend school. Like Ryan White, the Ray brothers were finally given a chance to live as normal a life as possible. They and their families continued to hold out hope that a cure might be found for HIV-AIDS. By 1987, the U.S. government was spending over $400 million on research, and AZT, the first drug approved by the FDA to treat AIDS, was introduced to patients. It wasn't a cure, but it could help extend a patient's life. Ryan White was among those to take AZT as soon as it was approved. But sadly, the virus was too strong. Ryan's frail little body could no longer fight the disease. And on March 29, 1990, suffering with yet another AIDS-related respiratory infection, he was admitted to hospital. His condition deteriorated rapidly. And author Nelson Price says when word spread of Ryan's condition, Elton John flew to Indiana. He spent a week at the hospital pretty much acting as Jeannie's secretary, answering the phones, dealing. He uh, made sure his security people could uh, protect uh, the white family from everything that was happening. While Elton John was in Indiana to keep vigil at Ryan's bed, he was also invited to perform at the fourth Farm Aid concert tour organized by Willie Nelson, which was being held just blocks away from the hospital. So on Saturday, April 7th, Elton John left Ryan's side and traveled to the Hoosier Dome, where he dedicated the song Candle in the Wind to his young friend. Several hours later, Ryan White died. He was 18 years old. The outpouring of grief and love for Ryan and his family could be seen all around the country. There was also shock. Ryan had been given six months to live, but had valiantly fought his illness for five years. It seemed like maybe he would never leave this world but there was no escaping the reality of AIDS. When word spread in Ryan's community, people started to show up outside his house in a sort of vigil. Nelson Price was among those on the front lawn that day covering the story for the local newspaper. 
So we're talking dozens and dozens of people on this lawn. Then rumors spread, Michael Jackson is probably coming. Then he did. And so I and the other media people had to be there in case uh, Michael Jackson said anything, you know, had a press conference or something, or in case Jeannie came out of the house and made an announcement of some kind. None of that happened. We were just kind of there uh, waiting in case something did and, and then, but it was very surreal um, and uh, to top it off Donald Trump was with Michael Jackson If that seems weird to you you're not alone Everyone was pretty surprised when Jackson showed up at Ryan's house with Donald Trump at his side The story goes that Michael Jackson was at Donald Trump's Taj Mahal Casino in Atlantic City when he heard that Ryan had died Jackson wanted to get to Indiana as quickly as possible. So Trump, who was still decades away from becoming a politician, offered the singer his plane. Jackson then insisted that Trump join him on the trip. Ryan's funeral was a star-studded affair. Pallbearers included Elton John, NFLer Howie Long, and talk show host Phil Donahue. Among the 1,500 people who attended, was the first lady, Barbara Bush. Michael Jackson, who sat with Ryan's mother, Jeannie, and his 16-year-old sister, Andrea. And Elton John, who led the congregation in singing a hymn. And then he sang his own song for Ryan called Skyline Pigeon. Skyline Pigeon, dreaming out the open, waiting for the day. He can spread his wings and fly. Busloads of Ryan's schoolmates from Hamilton Heights High also attended the funeral, which was carried live on CNN. Ryan White lived a short but impactful life. He forced people to deal with their own prejudices and preconceived notions. With his straight talk and unwavering determination, he transformed how people with AIDS are treated. But for his mom, Jeannie... He was something else. Well, a lot of people will say, you know, your son was such a hero and all that. But to me, he was my son. And, you know, sometimes it's so, so confusing because, you know, he, he was my little boy. And to be able to and to share him with everybody because, I mean, he wasn't perfect. <laughs> but at the same time, he was my son. It's hard to imagine, but Ryan's legacy grew even more after his death. In August 1990, the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency Act, also known as CARE, was signed into law in the U.S. The landmark legislation provided emergency funding for hospitals and clinics, and it set up a new federal program that would guarantee AIDS medicine and treatment to low-income people with HIV. For the past 30 years, the Ryan White HIV AIDS program has provided nearly $2 billion to assist half a million Americans with HIV AIDS. Ryan's story also lives on at the Indianapolis Children's Museum, where a recreation of his bedroom is on display as part of an exhibit called The Power of Children. His mom, Jeannie, who remarried and moved to Florida after her son's death, visits the museum once a year to talk about Ryan. Remember the Ray brothers from Florida? Sadly, two of them have died as well. Ricky in 1992 at the age of 15, Robert in 2000 at the age of 22. The youngest brother, Randy, is still alive. 
He's 43 and lives in Orlando and manages his HIV with medication. In 1998, the Ricky Ray Hemophilia Relief Fund Act in the U.S. provided over 6,000 people who contracted HIV through tainted blood products $100,000 each. In Canada, about 2,000 people were infected with HIV through blood products in the early 1980s. They were also compensated $120,000 each from the federal government. Elton John never forgot the young boy who changed his life. A boy who stood in solidarity with thousands of HIV-positive women and men. John carried on Ryan's mission to remind everyone that all victims of AIDS are innocent. In 1992, he founded the Elton John AIDS Foundation, which funds programs to prevent HIV-AIDS and combat prejudice and discrimination against those affected by the virus. Sir Elton and many others, everyone from Magic Johnson to RuPaul, were part of a wave of AIDS advocacy that swept North America in the 1990s and facilitated a tidal wave of change. That's coming up next time on History of the 90s. Thanks for joining me on this look back at the life and legacy of Ryan White, an incredibly brave and kind soul. And thanks to his mom, Jeannie Ginder White, who gave me permission to use the audio you heard in this episode. It appears on the Ryan White HIV AIDS program website. I'll share a link in the show notes. Thanks also to Nelson Price, who is basically an encyclopedia of knowledge on this case. His book is called The Quiet Hero, The Life of Ryan White. Nelson's full interview is available to Patreon subscribers. If you haven't joined already, what are you waiting for? Check it out at www.patreon.com slash history of the 90s. Thanks to a few new subscribers, Rob Curran, R. Dubs, Alexander, Janet, and Jennifer. Thanks to all of you for your support. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.